Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. An appeals court rules against Trump's presidential immunity claim. King Charles III is diagnosed with cancer. Yemen appoints a new prime minister. Former Chilean President Sebastián Piñera dies in a helicopter crash. Senegal postpones its elections until December. An independent panel will review Israel's UNRWA allegations. A child dies every two hours in a Sudanese displacement camp. The UK announces a £100 million investment in AI regulation. CERN aims to build a new atom collider. And Dartmouth basketball players could unionize. In our top story today, an appeals court rejects Trump's immunity claim. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, The Daily Caller, CNBC, Fox News, CNN, and PBS NewsHour. The U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled on Tuesday that former President Donald Trump cannot claim broad immunity from prosecution in the cases related to his actions following the 2020 election. Trump has been seeking immunity in the case brought by special counsel Jack Smith on charges of alleged criminal conduct following the election and leading up to the January 6, 2021 Capitol protests. While Trump says that he was acting out his role as executive following the election, shielding him from prosecution, the three-judge panel rejected his claims. In the 57-page opinion, the panel wrote, Former President Trump has become Citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, adding that he's not protected from an executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president. The question of presidential immunity is largely untested in the American legal system, and Trump will likely appeal Tuesday's ruling in the Supreme Court, which he has 90 days to do. Last month, the Supreme Court rejected Smith's request to expedite the trial, signaling it wanted to stay out of the process. Two of the judges who ruled on the case were President Joe Biden appointees, while the other was nominated by George H.W. Bush. The panel gave Trump until February 12th to file an emergency stay request with the Supreme Court, which would pause proceedings and, if successful, halt the criminal trial until the high court decides what to do with the request. The frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination, Trump faces four indictments, which he claims are politically motivated. Both sides are concerned about the date of the trial, with Smith hoping to prosecute Trump before November's election. Thanks, Melissa. We have an anti-Trump narrative from Newsweek. In yet another crushing blow to Donald Trump, the D.C. appeals court ruled that the former president's claim of immunity in his election subversion case is utterly bogus. Trump is desperate to pull out any trick in the book to delay his numerous trials and pardon himself if he somehow wins November's election. Everyone knows that Trump was not acting out any executive duties while trying to overturn the 2020 election, and he can only hope to stall his inevitable prosecution. Trump will face justice soon enough. Here's a pro-Trump narrative from PJ Media. While Tuesday's ruling completely ignores 250 years of protection for former presidents, it's unsurprising given the political bend of the judges. If you go back throughout history, former presidents have been shielded from prosecution as they should be. However, none of our norms and rules apply to Trump, who continues to be attacked and persecuted by the biased establishment. 
Hopefully, the Supreme Court puts an end to this charade, allowing the American people to elect their top choice, Trump. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 40% chance that Donald Trump will be convicted of a felony before the 2024 presidential election. If I was ever president, every single day I would issue a pardon to myself, just in case. <laughs> just in case. Now, now, why would you need to do that, Scott? I don't know. But, but hey, my... um. My kitchen sink doesn't smell yet, but I'm going to pour some ice and baking soda down there anyway. Like, let's okay. just, let's just, so this you know, is preventative prevention. maintenance. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And it's just, just like, every you day. know, clearing your browser history at the end of the day. Like, yeah. Exactly. Why would I need to do that? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. <laughs> what? Hypothetically, Mr. Wallace. Man, I didn't know you could do that. Interesting. <laughs> King Charles III is diagnosed with cancer. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Daily Beast, CBS News, Breitbart, and BBC News. Buckingham Palace announced on Monday that Britain's King Charles III has been diagnosed with a form of cancer and has begun regular treatments as an outpatient. Though the king will continue his official business and office work during treatment, it has been reported that he will postpone public-facing duties. On Tuesday, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that the monarch's cancer had been diagnosed at an early stage and the prognosis is good. The palace announced that Charles had an enlarged prostate on January 17th, the same day it was disclosed that Catherine, Princess of Wales, had undergone abdominal surgery. Charles, whose cancer was discovered during a hospital stay for benign prostate enlargement, reportedly shared his diagnosis so as to prevent speculation and raise awareness about the disease. About 36% of nearly 400,000 cancer cases reported in the UK each year are diagnosed in people aged 75 and older. Though lifetime risk of cancer has increased to one in two in the UK, as rising life expectancy means more people are living long enough to develop it, survival rates have doubled in the past 50 years. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of narratives with the narrative A, provided by the Royal Central. This announcement has reasserted the British royal's recent commitment to enhance transparency, particularly around health-related matters, even at the expense of their privacy. It's laudable that King Charles III has opted to reveal his medical condition to help millions suffering from similar issues. And Narrative B comes from The Spectator, Buckingham Palace's decision to provide sparse information about the monarch's diagnosis is fueling speculation about what kind of cancer King Charles III has been suffering from, as well as his condition. The palace has put itself in a difficult position going forward, needing to balance the interests of privacy and the demand for public transparency. And here's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 14% chance that King Charles will abdicate the throne of the United Kingdom before September 9th, 2032. I got to say, McNulty from The Wire. I thought it was going to be a distraction, him playing King Charles in The Crown. Uh, oh. Really good. You know, and he's like the main, you ever watch The Wire? Yes. So Ages McNulty, ago, yeah. the, main, the main character from The Wire. Is, he plays Charles. He plays Charles, you know, 1990s oh, Prince yes. Charles. Yes. Um, and I thought it was going to be a big distraction, uh, but it, it wasn't. You know, it was uh, he, he was really phenomenal as, as he Prince He does a Charles, great job. Yeah, yeah, I've just I've just ventured into that uh, arena of, of the crown. 
Yeah. Um, and I actually wasn't familiar with McNulty like that. Yeah. Twenty five year old show didn't, uh, <laughs> didn't dominate. <laughs> it's a classic. Brain. It's it's yeah. very good. Yeah. Um. Yes. No. I didn't register. I didn't know he was actually British. You know, and he's so good in The Wire uh, as kind of a scumbag guy. American. You know, like uh, with a, with a weird, you know, I guess it's a Baltimore accent. I don't know. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't occur to me that he could have been English. And but now he's well, much that more makes like him an even bigger jerk <laughs> for being so good at playing an American and Steal, not being stealing an all my roles is what you're saying, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I could have been McNulty. cast. I, yeah, I could have been could McNulty. Play McNulty. Yeah, you could definitely I could play, play McNulty. McNulty. Yeah, yeah, you could play McNulty. We could do McNulty together like the Olsen twins with Michelle Tanner. Like you just were one of us oh, is yeah. McNulty on any given scene and we just keep switching. Right. And just swap no one in, knows swap the difference. out. Yeah. Nobody Wouldn't be would just, that that would not be distracting. No, they'd be like, those are two Americans. I could hardly tell the difference. You know, with my luck, you would get the scene where McNulty infiltrated the brothel and he's uh and he <laughs> he goes for it. Uh, <laughs> right. Your very method in very your method. brothel acting. Yes. Only in the brothel though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Michael Jai White, who plays mm. one of like the side gangsters in The Dark Knight, you know, the Heath Ledger Batman movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you might think, given how intense that role wasn't obviously what ended up happening to Heath Ledger in real life, that recipe. he was some sort of a method actor or he would have been. Re- you would you would imagine Heath Ledger may have been pretty annoying on the set of The Dark Knight. You would, you yeah. know, in your mind's eye. But Michael Jai White said. You don't have to be a weirdo to be a great artist. You know, you can still <laughs> be regular and have the spirit of collaboration, even if you're a great artist. You know, I feel like a lot of artists take the opportunity to be weird because we have to accommodate them. Yeah. Because um, we'll tolerate it. Um, right. But he said, no, Heath Ledger was great. Apparently still took a toll on him, though. Well, you know? I'll, I'll say. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's an understatement. <laughs> that's okay. I think, yeah, I can't. I mean, uh, but you have anything probably... else to tell us, doctor? Yemen appoints its foreign minister, Bin Mubarak, as prime minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Arabia, Al Jazeera, Sana'a's Center for Strategic Studies, Global Conflict Tracker, and TRT World. Yemen's internationally recognized presidential council issued a decree Monday appointing Foreign Minister Ahmad Awad bin Mubarak as the country's new prime minister, replacing Mayin Abdumalik Saeed, who had been in office since 2018. The cabinet later took to social media to announce that Saeed will become an advisor to the chairman of Yemen's Presidential Leadership Council, or PLC. No reason was given for this change, which comes amid mounting tensions in the Red Sea between Houthi rebels in the UK and the US. Bin Mubarak, Yemen's former ambassador to the US and to the UN, gained prominence in 2015 when his kidnapping plunged the country into a political crisis. The PLC was formed in April 2022 after then-President Abed Rabo Mansour Hadi transferred power to an eight-man body that gathers different factions within the anti-Houthi alliance. But its legitimacy has never been accepted by the Houthis amid claims that Hadi's powers had already expired. A civil war between the Iran-aligned Shia Houthis and the Saudi-backed internationally recognized Sunni government has continued in Yemen since 2014, taking a heavy toll on Yemeni civilians and causing one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. 
Though Houthi Saudi talks to find a political solution to the conflict reportedly achieved positive results to revive a ceasefire, they have stalled since the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war last October. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Arab Weekly. The appointment of bin Mubarak aims to appease donors to Yemen in the face of the Houthis' growing confidence within the region. The new prime minister is an enemy of the military group and a key figure in the establishment of the internationally recognized government. So his promotion allows a fresh opportunity to tackle continued domestic and international concerns. And here's an establishment critical narrative from the Yemen press agency. This change in leadership is likely a response to the disastrous economic collapse recently seen in areas under the rule of the Saudi-led coalition puppet government. But bin Mubarak has a history of corruption, so it's hard to foresee any positive outcome unless the pro-coalition authorities completely revise their failed policies. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 50% chance that Yemen will no longer be classified as being in a state of civil war by January 1st, 2028. Okay, Scott, they said that Hadi's powers had already expired, but they're probably good for another couple of years, though, right? I mean, past the expiration. I was actually just looking at, uh, I had some canned tuna, and it's been properly stored, it's been sealed, it's chicken of the sea, and it expired in September. Oh, yeah, you're good. Yeah, and I looked it up, and they say canned tuna at least a year after the thing, and you're not even like pushing it. Like you got to, you got at least a year, and possibly not indefinitely, but like a little bit indefinitely, you know. Yeah. But um, mainly it's if the can keeps getting hot and cold. Like if you mm. left it in your car for a long time or something weird, like that would be deleterious to it. So I'm fine with the uh, with that with that chicken of the sea chunk. Yeah, light is still just good. keep eating tuna. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I what's annoying to me is that tuna <laughs> the minute they say something that I like is also healthy, there'll immediately be some huge backlash. Like I really like tuna. I've always liked tuna. I can eat it right out of the can. No problem. You know, it's like, "Oh nice. good. I, I don't I don't mind that." Yeah. And um and, and then, then of course like, mercury. "Oh, mercury, can't can't, you know, limit your tuna, limit your whatever." Like, "Oh gosh." <laughs> you know, I just have to only eat bran, I guess. That's the only thing. That we can, yeah. eat. that's too or many you, carbs, actually. Yeah, you have to go and hunt your own bison and, um, you know, that's deer and work. Yeah. Cornish game hens. You can, can get you the hens, they're little. How good that bison steak or something tastes after you hunt it like that? Like you're on like a four month long hunt riding yeah. behind this herd and you finally get one and then you eat it. And it must, I, I, can't, I oh. don't think we could understand what that tastes like. It a must spiritual have been, like, experience. It probably was. I mean, there's probably a reason why native peoples are so spirit. Like, oh my God, this tastes like it was sent from God. That's all it is. That's a, yeah. I'm, it's an, I'm being overtaken. Me, my wife and I did paleo for a month one time. Congratulations. And I lost a bunch of weight. <laughs> and uh, so it, it worked. Um, but we went to... The crab pot, that place down by the wharf where oh, you yeah. have like they pour the seafood on the table. Yeah. Um, and that's actually a great place to go if you're doing paleo because they just dump a bunch of crab on your on your in your face. Right. Um, and we both decided and we had been doing I think we had been doing paleo. I was had been very strict. We had been mm. doing it for about five weeks and we both said, let's both have one roll. Like, let's just both have oh. one roll. Yeah, and I did bread. get like, did have, get like a euphoric feeling from it. You know, that should, it's, it was, it was like, whoa, my brain, this bread tastes so good. 
Yeah. Um, the bread there nice, is pretty good, but baked, it's not. nice and hot. Yeah, yeah, it was nice, nice, fresh sourdough. I mean, it's good bread, but I, I've had it many times. And that one was like, I think this might be the best bread I've ever had. You know? <laughs> totally. That's the closest we'll ever come is like, I went on a diet. Former Chilean President Piñera dies in a helicopter crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, The Washington Post, and Reuters. Former two-term Chilean President Sebastián Piñera, who served from 2010 to 2014 and again from 2018 to 2022, died Tuesday after a helicopter he was on crashed into Lake Ronco. There have been reports that he was piloting the aircraft, but this has yet to be confirmed. Three other passengers survived. During his first term, Pinera, 74, oversaw quick economic growth and a drop in unemployment, the opposite of the economic conditions seen in neighboring Latin American countries at that time. During his second term, the former conservative president, who was also a billionaire businessman, was impeached by the lower house of the legislature over allegations of using his office to benefit his family's business interests. However, the Senate voted not to remove him from office. His second term also endured violent protests over inequality, his reaction to which was met with allegations of human rights violations. Following the protests, the government promised to write a new constitution. Pinera, who was educated in both Chile as well as the U.S.'s Harvard University, was estimated to have a net worth of $2.7 billion. His business success began when he founded the credit card company Banco in the 1970s. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And here are the spins, starting with a narrative A from Global Americans. There's a reason that in the middle of his second term, Piñera's approval rating sat at 6%, making him one of the most unpopular presidents in world history, even compared to Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro. Chileans from across the political spectrum condemned him for his treatment of street protesters and failure to reform dictator Augusto Pinochet's constitution. Even his staunchest supporters understood that he was a political liability rather than a source of unity. And narrative B comes from the New York Times. Following Piñera's first term, which was part of Chile's post-Pinochet economic revival, the two-term president once again pushed the country upward, both economically and socially. While he did use justified use of force during violent times, he proved transparent by allowing the U.N. to visit Chile to investigate abuse of power claims. Piñera believed in using the government to give those at the bottom as much opportunity as those at the top, a legacy for which he should be remembered. I'm telling you, helicopters and private planes, if you're wealthy, look out. I think the big problem with these helicopters and private planes is that the person flying it can't tell the rich guy who wants to get flown around that conditions aren't right or the helicopter's not right or something's wrong uh, because, you know, this guy says, hey, I want to get over here now. Uh, Yeah, it's probably fine. Yeah, I think we're good. But then we're right. No, what what you want to do is before your head is, you know, overcome with your own ego. Too late. uh, (laughs) Okay, go back in time and then hire a former army pilot or uh, or Air Force pilot who's going to say, nope, this is what you do and uh, maybe boss you around a little bit. Yeah. Maybe that's just me. Like I want, I want the, um, the personal All of managers. Your solutions when you get rich and famous are someone bossing you around. Like you want your Keep house manager, your major domo to beat you up. You want your pilot. For God's to be, you just, sake. 
You just need to be kept strictly in line with your billions of dollars, which is probably right. It's, I mean, I'm trying to safeguard my my fortune here. Yeah. Right. Keep me in line, people. If I'm the kind of person who's getting flown around, you know, a, a multi-hundred millionaire or billionaire or whatever this guy is, I don't. it doesn't matter if I'm late anyway, because everyone has to wait for me. So, you know what? My helicopter's not taking out. Know, who are you rushing around for? You're we the person to... everyone else is rushing around for. So what you're saying, Scott, is you're promoting billionaire self-care. Senegal postpones its election until December. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, U.S. News and World Report, NPR Online News, The Guardian, Reuters, and Voice of America. Senegal's presidential election has been pushed to December 15th after the country's parliament voted to delay it on Monday. The election was originally slated for February 25th, but on Saturday, President Macky Sall announced a postponement that prompted violent protests. Sall's bill initially sought to delay the election until August 25th, but it was later amended to December 15th, passing through the 165-seat assembly with 105 votes. The Senegalese president, who has served his constitutional limit of two terms and isn't up for re-election, cited a dispute over the candidate list and alleged corruption within the Constitutional Council, which manages the candidate selection process. Opposition leaders, however, say that Saul is trying to extend his rule, which was scheduled to end on April 2nd, by engaging in a constitutional coup. On Monday, two opposition parties filed a court petition asking Senegal's Constitutional Council to direct the continuation of the electoral process but the result of the filing is uncertain. Meanwhile, protesters flocked to the streets, chanting, Macky Sall is a dictator, outside Parliament. As protests turned violent, riot police sprayed tear gas to break up crowds, and authorities temporarily limited mobile internet access on Sunday night to combat alleged online hate messages and threats to public order. The postponement of the election means that Saul will likely remain in office until a new president is elected and sworn in. With the situation having captured the attention of Western nations, including the U.S., which have urged the West African nation to hold elections in a timely manner. Amid a region prone to political stability, Senegal has been regarded as one of West Africa's stronger democracies since it gained independence from France in 1960. However, rising tensions over the last year have sparked worries about the outbreak of a potential coup. Thanks, Melissa. Lamond brings us Narrative A. Once considered an example of democracy in West Africa, Senegal is seeing an erosion of its democratic institutions as President Saul postpones this year's presidential election. In addition to his undemocratic decision to stay in power longer than his term allows, Saul's government has deployed riot police to tear gas dissenters and has restricted internet access. Senegal must hold a free and fair election as scheduled, and Saul must leave when his term ends. And here's Narrative B from the Africa Report. President Saul put any speculation about running for a third term to bed months ago, and he made the difficult decision to move Senegal's election in order to protect candidates who were unfairly removed from the candidate list. Saul has no desire to serve beyond his two terms and is only looking to strengthen Senegalese democracy for future generations. The president is committed to being transparent in everything he does, and his decision will allow voters to pick the candidate of their choice without bureaucratic meddling. 
And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 10% chance that Senegal will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040. I feel like being a country that speaks French puts you closer to a coup d'etat happening, right? Mm, just part of the history. It's hey. a French term, so you're already yeah. halfway there. I you don't feel think like they're, they're more, like a, you're more obligated because yeah, I mean you're it's French it's already country. on the tip of everyone's tongue. If you're in feudal Japan and you're trying to stage a coup and you have to explain to everyone what that means first, it kind of slows the whole process. Right. We're gonna do a coup d'etat. What? Like, okay, wait a minute, <laughs> stop everybody. We get a blackboard. The U.N. appoints an independent panel to review Israel's UNRWA allegations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, the Financial Times, U.N. News and Reuters. U.N. Chief Antonio Guterres on Monday appointed an independent panel running alongside the U.N.'s own investigation to examine Israeli allegations that 12 members of staff from the U.N.'s Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, or UNRWA, took part in the October 7th attacks on Israel that killed upwards of 1,200 people. Following the yet unproven claims, 16 countries suspended funding, resulting in a total loss of $440 million for the organization. The agency, which employs 13,000 staff in Gaza, is the primary source of aid for the war-torn enclave's 2.3 million population. It has said that famine is looming in Gaza and appealed to the countries to reverse their decisions. Meanwhile, the U.N. said the review panel will be headed by former French foreign minister Catherine Colonna, who will work with three research organizations, the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Sweden, the CHR Mikkelsen Institute in Norway, and the Danish Institute for Human Rights. It further said that work will begin on February 14th, that the panel would send an interim report to the U.N. in late March, and that a final report, which will be made public, is expected by late April. Nonetheless, Philippe Lazzarini, head of UNRWA, said his organization has not received any evidence from Israel to back up its allegations. A number of publications, most prominently the Financial Times in Britain, also said they had reviewed the confidential document laying out Israel's allegations, but said the claims are not backed up with hard evidence. The U.S., however, says the claims are highly, highly credible. Israel said the proof lay in intelligence intercepts and identity cards seized during the course of the fighting but it so far has not handed this over to the U.N. Lior Hayat, a spokesman for Israel's foreign ministry, said, I don't think we need to give intelligence information. This would reveal sources in the operation. In the meantime, with UNRWA warning it would have to cease operations by the end of February if funding does not resume, Lazzarini is visiting three Gulf countries this week in a bid to restore some of the deficit. Meanwhile, over the past week, Spain and Portugal increased their funding to the agency, donating an additional 3.5 million euro, or $3.8 million, and 1 million euro, or $1.1 million, respectively. Those were the facts, and here are the spins, starting with a pro-Israel narrative from the Jerusalem Post. The ties between the UNRWA and Hamas have always been well-known and well-documented, way before the October 7 attacks. However, with UNRWA facilitating these disgusting anti-Semitic attacks on Israel, as the evidence undoubtedly shows, there can be no choice but to completely close down the organization. And the pro-Palestine narrative comes from the conversation. While there are serious allegations against UNRWA, they have yet to be backed up by evidence, so they shouldn't be taken at face value. 
even if the claims are true, it would amount to just 0.04% of the agency's workers. Should 2.3 million Palestinians who face one of the worst humanitarian crises in modern history face collective punishment for the alleged actions of such a small minority? And there's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community that says there's a 50% chance that Israel will lift the blockade on electricity, food, gasoline, and medicine in Gaza by June 2024. A new report says a child dies every two hours in a Sudan camp. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Doctors Without Borders, Africa News, Middle East Monitor, PBS NewsHour, and the Millennium Post. According to a report published on Monday by Doctors Without Borders, at least one child dies every two hours in the Zamzam camp, one of the largest and oldest displacement camps located in Sudan's state of North Darfur. The medical aid organization alleges that at least 13 minors are losing their lives every day to severe malnutrition. Furthermore, the worst affected are children aged between six months and two years, with about 15 percent suffering from severe acute malnutrition. Zamzam was reportedly established in 2003 to shelter displaced people fleeing ethnically targeted violence in Darfur. However, since the war broke out between Sudan's military and paramilitary forces last April, essential humanitarian aid has been allegedly cut off. Before the outbreak of the Sudanese war, camp residents were dependent on international aid for food, health care, and clean water. But Doctors Without Borders claims they had been almost completely abandoned. Meanwhile, the head of the UN Refugee Agency has warned that Europe will face a new influx of Sudanese refugees unless aid efforts are bolstered or a ceasefire agreement isn't signed soon between Sudan's warring factions. Over 9 million Sudanese have been reportedly displaced internally in Sudan, while about 1.5 million refugees have fled to neighboring countries in 10 months of violent clashes. Thanks, Melissa. The establishment critical narrative comes from Human Rights Watch. The children's unimaginable suffering and the humanitarian disaster unfolding in Sudan must be a wake-up call for all countries and institutions worldwide who take their values seriously. The international response has failed to provide assistance to the suffering population or hold warring parties accountable. Global indifference is costing lives, and Sudan is sad proof of the so-called international community's failure and double standards. And here is a pro-establishment narrative from the Sudan Tribune. The suffering of Sudan's children is indeed a scar on the conscience of the international community. However, the complexity and multi-layeredness of this crisis and the immense challenges it poses can't be underestimated. The U.N. is determined to launch its largest-ever humanitarian operation for Sudan to reach millions of displaced persons. With the international community's help, addressing at least the most acute suffering and developing long-term humanitarian solutions will be possible. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the rate of deaths per 100,000 people from global conflict will be at least 1.8 in 2025. The U.K. announces a £100 million investment in AI regulation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Verdict, the Irish News, Independent, and Al Jazeera. The U.K. government has announced an investment of more than £100 million, or $126 million American dollars, to educate regulators on artificial intelligence. 
10 million pounds will go toward enhancing the skills of regulators, including the Office of Communications, or Ofcom, and the Competition and Markets Authority, with another 90 million pounds funding nine research programs focused on fields such as healthcare, chemistry, and mathematics. On top of the research programs, which will also focus on the education, telecom, and finance sectors, an additional 19 million pounds will be allocated toward 21 projects concerning AI trust and safety. The government last year decided to educate existing regulators on the matter of AI rather than create a new regulator. Another £9 million will be sent to the government's International Science Partnership, which brings U.S. and U.K. researchers together to study AI safety. Furthermore, £2 million will be given to the Arts and Humanities Research Council to study responsible AI. This follows the world's first-ever AI Safety Summit last November, hosted by the U.K., during which more than 25 countries signed the Bletchley Declaration, an acknowledgement that AI could cause serious, even catastrophic harm. The UK government has also asked regulators to submit their own approaches to AI by April 30th. These approaches include identifying AI risks, as well as plans for regulating the technology in the coming year. Thank you, Scott. We'll start with the pro-establishment narrative from the Register. The UK has decided to take a cautious, research-based approach to tackle AI rather than a knee-jerk decision to pass laws. With the goal of becoming a world leader in AI technology, London must be careful not to over-legislate its technology sector, which would stifle innovation and its economic benefits. The UK also knows that the AI debate is still ongoing throughout the world, with governments and business leaders working to pinpoint the best response to this complex technology. And the establishment critical narrative comes from The Guardian. The first draft of the UK's AI white paper was released almost a year ago, and still no concrete action has been taken. As the government spends £100 million on thinking about AI, leaders in countries like Canada are proposing a billion-dollar program to create a government supercomputer to compete with private tech companies. While worries about overregulating too quickly are understandable, the UK's approach of doing nothing will neither boost innovation nor enhance safety. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 15% chance that the AI world described by Scott Aronson, specifically the AI dystopia scenario, will come to pass. CERN will build a new atom collider to find the rest of the universe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, BBC News, Sky News, Fizz.org, and Extreme Tech. The Geneva-Switzerland-based European Organization for Nuclear Research, or CERN, which is home to the Large Hadron Collider Particle Accelerator, has initiated its plan to develop a new accelerator called the Future Circular Collider. It will cost 20 billion euros, be three times the size of the LHC, and have a 91-kilometer circumference. The current price tag, which is only for initial construction costs, will be funded by CERN member states, such as the UK. The plan is for it to be built in two stages, the first of which is expected to begin in the 2040s to collide electrons. The second phase, which will collide heavier protons, is projected to begin in the 2070s, though it will require more powerful magnets that have not yet been invented. The Large Hadron Collider, which began accelerating subatomic particles at nearly light speed in 2008, achieved its first high-energy particle collision in 2010, thus discovering the Higgs boson particle, also dubbed the God particle, 
While this has enabled scientists to better understand where matter gets its mass from, researchers are still trying to learn about other parts of the universe, such as dark matter and dark energy. Before any construction begins, a feasibility study for the future circular collider will be completed by 2025, with the member states voting on whether to go through with the project three years later. If approved, construction will begin in 2028. The first phase, which would consist of smashing more light particles, would further investigate the Higgs boson. Then, by the 2070s, the goal is for the next-generation, heavy-duty future circular collider to begin smashing protons, with an energy target of 100 trillion electron volts. This is far higher than the Large Hadron Collider's record of 13.6 trillion. The underground tunnel within which the future circular collider will pass under Lake Geneva and then loop around underneath the French town of Annecy. While CERN hopes to use this novel technology to discover properties that are believed to make up 95% of the universe, the Swiss and French governments will also work together to ensure it won't negatively impact surrounding communities or ecosystems. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A on this story comes from Research Outreach. Previous colliders, like the Large Hadron Collider, have brought us world-changing knowledge concerning what the universe is made of and how it works. However, for scientists to understand dark energy and matter, it will take decades of research and exponentially more energy to discover, quite literally, new physics. Lessons learned from past technological shortfalls and failures in resource and budget management will also help the world's physicists come together to build something more powerful than currently imaginable. Scientific American brings us a Narrative B. While the potential discoveries touted by CERN sound amazing, the billions of dollars in just starting costs are not worth a project that could very well lead to nothing. Since the 1940s, scientists have made incremental progress until they discovered the Higgs boson particle, which has established the standard model law of physics. What CERN wants to spend decades of work and billions of dollars investigating now, dark matter and dark energy, are things that currently have no evidence behind them and might not be possible to find. There are better uses of these massive funds. And appropriately, we have a nerd narrative on this story as well. There's a 51% chance that we will know what dark matter is before the year 2050, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Yes, in order to discover the universe, let's just destroy, absolutely destroy our planet. Let's make it, you know, like... um. When uh, Cortez landed and, you know, and they burned the ships, there's no going back now. Yeah. So if we destroy our planet, then we have to get something out of these scientific discoveries. I, oh, I, yeah. That commitment, you know, that that's that's very interesting commitment. Oh, that's that's strangely a more positive view than I had of just mm. like, oh, we figured it out. Oops, we all died. <laughs> our final story, Dartmouth men's basketball can unionize. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, CBS, ESPN, ABC News, and the Associated Press. A regional official from the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, ruled Monday that players on the Dartmouth College men's basketball team have the right to unionize as employees of the school, setting up an election to create the first ever labor union for NCAA athletes. NLRB Regional Director Laura Sachs explained in a written statement that since Dartmouth has the right to control the work performed by its basketball team and the players' work in exchange for compensation, 
the players are employees within the meaning of the National Labor Relations Act. Previously, all 15 members of the team in September signed a petition asking to join Local 560 of the Service Employees International Union, which represents other Dartmouth employees. The team and the university argued before the NLRB during a four-day hearing in October, with Dartmouth arguing that extracurricular activities are part of players pursuing an academic mission. The team is expected to vote on unionization soon and needs just a simple majority to form college sports' first union. In addition to establishing wage standards for players, a collective bargaining agreement could establish standards for working conditions, such as practice times and travel arrangements. This is the second major effort to unionize in college sports in a decade. In 2014, the Northwestern football team held a vote to unionize, but the ballots were impounded and destroyed after the NLRB overruled a regional official. In 2021, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against a longstanding NCAA policy prohibiting athletes from receiving any compensation, arguing the rule violated antitrust laws. Dartmouth said Tuesday it will appeal the ruling. And we'll begin this round of spins with a narrative A from Yardvarker. This is a major victory for labor, justice, and student-athletes who work tirelessly for their school's programs, generating revenue without receiving compensation. The emergence of recent labor deals allows some athletes to earn money, but most NCAA athletes don't have a big enough following to do the same. Hopefully a unionized Dartmouth basketball team will set a path for other programs to follow. And Narrative B comes from Bro Bible. This decision could spell the end of the NCAA and college sports as we know them. These deals might not appropriately reward non-star players, but a broad interpretation of this ruling could mean that non-revenue sports teams could unionize and demand wages. This is a Pandora's box that should not be opened. And the nerds have the last word from Metaculous Prediction Community, saying there's a 50% chance that at least 12% of American workers will be represented by a labor union in 2030. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Thank you.